1 Corinthians 15, start with verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving, life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are, are of heaven. Just as, we have, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, uh, come before you this morning and um, just beseech you on behalf of Pastor Brian and us as a congregation. Lord, as he he speaks, uh, may we hear uh, the words as coming from your mouth. And as he proclaims your name, uh, may we... May, may your greatness be evident to us. We ask your blessing on this time and for your spirit to be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Greg, for reading uh, our scripture text this morning. Um, 
It's uh, definitely an interesting text. Um, as you see at the very beginning, I had to determine whether I wanted to end with being baptized for the dead or begin with it. So I chose to begin with it. I'm sure maybe his reading has piqued your curiosity a little bit. So, uh, but we will walk through that in momentarily. Before we get there, um, I am just so thankful for God's Word and the work that it does in our hearts. And I appreciate your being here to allow God's Word to work. Um, over the past few weeks, this work through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 has just been uh, precious to me, um, just to remind myself of what the future holds for God's people. And uh, there's, there's a lot of things, and we'll talk about it as we get into our text, but there, there are a lot of things in life that are difficult and hard. And our expectation to some degree as Christians can be that, um, well, I'll just give it to God and God will, will fix it all. And, we'll, and then over time we think, well, why isn't it fixed? Why isn't it fixed? Why isn't it fixed? And as we look into our text today, we're going to see that there are some pains. And there are some hurts. There are some struggles in life that will only be resolved in heaven. There are some things that we, we just feel. And we continue to feel them throughout this life. I'm reminded of Paul writing and reminding us that he had this thorn in the flesh and that he prayed three times that God would take it away and God's answer is not, yes, I'll remove it. He says, my grace is sufficient. But I know this, that in heaven, Paul doesn't face it anymore. That Jesus will return and he will wipe away every tear. Isn't that good news? I'm so excited about this text today and excited about the last two that we've looked at on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And so hopefully that excites you a little bit today. We're going to be looking at this section, and the title of the sermon is Pursuing Love That Proclaims Victory Over Death. And Paul's goal in this section is what, we, what, what Greg read at the very end, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing it's not in vain. And that's his goal in this section, to get to that. And it flows from what we saw as his goal in 14, verse 1, that we as his church, as the church of Jesus Christ, are meant to pursue love. And this love is this work for the Lord that's produced in us, that Paul desires for the Corinthian church, that they would have such love that it would produce this working, this abounding in the work of the Lord. And he wants it not just for the church at Corinth, but he wants it for us as well. This is God's word to them through Paul, but to us also. And to achieve this goal that Paul desires in them, Paul needed to address an issue in the church at Corinth regarding the resurrection of the dead. And uh, two weeks ago, we started chapter 15, and Paul started first by stressing the foundation of of the resurrection of the dead, which is the gospel, and more specifically, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The fact that Jesus rose again, and that he appeared to other people. There are eyewitnesses that saw this account, and Paul himself being an eyewitness and declaring it to us. 
We look back at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 3. For I declare to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared. We see this is a foundation of this resurrection of the dead that, that all believers should be looking forward to and hoping in. Next, Paul stressed the interdependence of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the dead and of the gospel, that all three of these go together, and to remove one is to lose the others. And we see this at the beginning of verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, if you believe the gospel, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ is raised, then of course we are all going to be raised as well. And if we are not raised, he goes on to say, then Christ was not raised. We have no hope. The gospel falls apart without the resurrection. Today, now, Paul stresses the absolute necessity of the resurrection of the dead for a victorious life now and for a victorious life in eternity. Without the resurrection we have neither of those. But because Paul has now proven the resurrection, he's able to proclaim with certainty and fact that there is victory. There is a life to be lived for God now, and there is a life to be lived for God in the future that is victorious. And so this morning, my main point is this. The promised resurrection matters to the Christian's view of this life and the afterlife. How we view this life and therefore how we live it is dependent upon our view of the resurrection. How we look forward to and hope in the next life is dependent upon this resurrection. And so we're going to walk through uh, this main point today. I have two points for the sermon. Before that, we do that, let, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your generous grace and goodness to us. Lord, we joy in the fact that you have come into this world. We joy in the fact that this world will not remain as it is. It will not continue forever marked by sin and the brokenness that comes with sin and the death that comes with sin with heartache and loss and pain. Lord, thank you that this world will be reborn and remade. Lord, that your son Jesus did rise and will return for us, his church. Lord, and we will not remain as we are. We will be changed as well. Lord, thank you for this. I pray this morning that the truths of this text would be food to our hungry souls. Lord, that we would eat and be full today and be able to go about our day uh, living with spiritual strength and vigor because of what your word says today. Lord, may, may my feeble efforts to declare it be faithful to the words that you have here because they are truth and life to us. Lord, may we know it, may we be full from it, and may it strengthen our efforts as we go throughout the day. Lord, may we truly be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in your work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. First point this morning is this, the promised resurrection instructs Christians on how to live now. The promised resurrection instructs Christians on how to live now. And he starts off with this very uh, somewhat controversial 
verse here in 26. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? One commentator said that as he searched throughout history, he found over 30 different views on this one verse, what it means to be baptized on behalf of the dead. Another commentator claimed to have found over 40 different views. Probably the, the, the most significant view, just because it, it seems to be what the text is saying, just outright and directly, is that the Corinthians here were erroneously, and most people who hold this view would argue that it is an erroneous view that the Corinthians had, of baptizing living people as representatives of dead people. So vicarious or proxy baptism. So then, and, and, and within that, there's a spectrum that varies widely between people who are being baptized for a, a Christian who just recently died and died before they were able to be baptized, to others being baptized for their ancestors and such and so on. Uh, most of them, like I said, view this erroneously, that, that the Corinthians had misunderstood um, how baptism worked. But that raises a question in my mind. Would Paul appeal to an error without correcting it? Now, when we come to the book of Corinthians, if you've been hanging with us through Corinthians, you know that Paul hasn't really held back on correcting error, right? I mean, you have things like uh, the man living in sin with his, with his mother-in-law, and uh, you have, a, uh, you have the, the head coverings. He deals with head coverings. It minor, seems a minor issue, yet he... Deals with it fairly thoroughly. Uh, when he comes to the Lord's Supper and how they're abusing it, I mean, he is very straightforward with that. I mean, if you think about now they're misusing baptism too? Like, where's the whole text on how they need to stop doing this and start doing something else? So I don't think this is probably what's in mind here in the text. There's two other possible options that I think are very viable ways of understanding it. First of all, Believers were being baptized as a result of a desire to be united with their believing relatives or friends who had died. Their desire was that as they were baptized, they were proclaiming their desire to be united with those who had passed on and who had died previously. Maybe they're people who had, who had greatly influenced them. Maybe they're the people who share the gospel. And as they, as they begin to understand the gospel and what the gospel hope was, that their desire was to spend eternity with these people who they cherish so much. And so that's one view. Another one is that believers were being baptized and considered himself dead to the world, having died with Christ, affirming the body dead and the spirit alive in hopes that the body will one day be made spiritually alive at the resurrection. So, um, uh, early church fathers would often translate this verse as them being baptized on behalf of dead bodies, their own dead bodies. Like they're proclaiming, my body is dead, I've died with Christ. I no longer live for myself, I live for him. Either one of those affirms the hope of the resurrection and the practice. And that's what Paul is really calling to here. He's saying, here in this verse, you guys are practicing something that affirms the hope of the resurrection, yet you're struggling to believe that you even rise from the dead. How can you do this? Each one of these affirms the practice of believer's baptism as we would know it 
as is taught to us in Scripture. And that's really the first instruction that the promised resurrection gives us on how to live. It's on the practice of the ordinance of baptism. Resurrection is meant to instruct us on practicing the ordinance of baptism. Paul is asking here, how can any Christian practice baptism and not believe in the resurrection? In fact, when we practice baptism here at our church, we affirm the truths of the resurrection. You know, imagine if all we affirmed was the death of Jesus Christ. Okay, somebody chuckled. So I'll explain, all right? When we put people underwater, we often say things like, buried with him in his death. And when we bring them back out, we say, risen with him in his resurrection. Imagine if we just proclaimed his death. Buried with him in his death. All right, hang out there. That would be bad, right? Right? Again, I think Paul is referring to the biblical scriptural view of baptism because he didn't correct their errors. And in baptism, we have to remember that there's an affirmation here of a hope of the resurrection. That the newness of life that we're proclaiming in baptism is a newness of life that we will see not just lived out in this life, but a life to come. We're proclaiming that our spirit has been united with Christ. We have trusted in Him. So our spirit's been made alive. And that our hope in the future is that our body too will be made alive. What do we know about our bodies? They're decaying, right? They're moving progressively faster towards death. But the resurrection proclaims that our bodies will be made new again. Spiritual bodies that will not decay. And that is a hope of baptism. So baptism is practice because Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why we practice baptism in the hopes of eternal life. But Paul goes on. He doesn't, he doesn't spend much time there. He continues in verse 30 and says, Why are we in danger every hour? And this is the second point of instruction. The promised resurrection instructs us in the practice of baptism but it also instructs us in practicing a sacrificial lifestyle. Sacrifice, in Paul's mind, is a part of Christianity. Notice what he says in verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. This is Paul's outlook on the Christian life. It's Paul's outlook on the Christian life for himself. I die every day. But it's also the Christ, uh, or Paul's outlook on the Christian life that the Corinthians should be living. Because what does he say here? I protest by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like you have been converted by Jesus Christ, and you know this is the kind of lifestyle to live. It's my pride in you who know the truth that spurs me to protest so what paul then describes as his life is also the life he expects the corinthians to know and live out as well i die every day affirming the resurrection of jesus christ and the resurrection of the dead logically leads to 
a sacrificial life. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the next. And therefore, we are willing to live a life sacrificially because of where our hope is. Denying the resurrection logically then leads to a selfish lifestyle. Notice what he says in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised. What is he saying? If I don't believe the dead are raised, why would I sacrifice myself? Why would I live sacrificially? Why would I put myself into a position of danger? Notice what follows. Here's how he would live. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's how I'll live. I will live for myself, for my own pleasures. The fact is, what belief does your lifestyle logically point to? If you were to do an evaluation of your lifestyle right now, what does it logically point to? If you're living for yourself, it points to the fact that you are not considering the resurrection of the dead and the future resurrection and hope of glory enough. You're not. Because In doing so, you would understand that a sacrificial lifestyle is what we have been called to live. He goes on to say this, verse 33, Do not be deceived. The temptation to live selfishly in this life is real. It's weighty. We're tempted to make our lives all about what's going on now. The contrast here is between Paul who says Christianity, the embracing of of the resurrection is I die daily. Those who maybe, maybe theologically would affirm the resurrection but practically don't live it out saying I will live for myself. I will eat, drink, and be merry and tomorrow I'll die. That is the distinction here that's being made. And Paul's description of our, our place in this right now is that we are standing a, a, at a place where we can make a choice and we are not meant to be deceived by the glitz and glamour of a selfish lifestyle lived for myself. We, and if we go that route, we are deceived. How many of you want to be deceived? Enjoy being deceived? Like, man, that was a great deception. Thanks for doing that. None of us like being deceived. No, but here's the thing. Paul is warning us here. Here we are on this, on this opportunity to take this step, this choice. How are you going to live? The fact is you will walk out of this room, maybe even before you walk out of this room, you will make a choice about this. The fact is there are people here that maybe are more difficult to talk to than others. And you have to make a choice. Am I going to live for myself and scurry on out and not have to talk to them? Or am I going to sacrifice a little bit of my time and spend some time with them. I mean, before you even leave this room, this choice is going to have to be made. And when you leave, this choice is going to have to be made. And every day, this choice is going to have to be made. Do I live for myself or do I live the way God calls me to live? I mean, it's not Paul here who's describing this, who's saying this. Isn't this what Jesus said? When he says, if you, if you seek to gain your life, hold on to your life, 
you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. Die daily. Die daily. He goes on to say this little proverb that was, I, I guess, some, some popular back then, but bad company ruins good morals. It's interesting, this, uh, this little phrase here runs in the face of some who would preach an incarnational living. Live like Jesus lived. Let me explain. Jesus ate with sinners and was accused of being a, drunk, a drunkard and a glutton. Now, when we look at his, the history, Jesus did eat with them. Jesus went in with them. He ate with them. He lovingly confronted them about their sinful lifestyle. You know, you hear phrases from Jesus like, go and sin no more, things like that. Like, confronting their lifestyle where they were at. He went to where they were. He stepped into a circle when men were going to stone an adulteress. But when he left her, he left her with go and sin no more. But the accusations of Jesus being a drunkard and a glutton were not true. Jesus was neither of those. If we are to truly follow the example of Jesus, we will be where sinners are to lovingly share the gospel with them and call them to repentance. And we may then be accused of things, but those accusations should not be true. As Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not on your account, on his account. Doing his work is sometimes what gets us accused of things falsely. Unfortunately, though, some Christians use the example of of Jesus as an excuse to actually be drunkards and gluttons. They are deceived. They are living a selfish lifestyle. The fact is, Christians are to be in the world, but not be of the world. They're not. And bad company here, bad, bad conversation, bad, um, this, this bad company of, of, of folks can ruin good morals. Now, within the context, what is he talking about? He's talking about people who have denied the resurrection. You hang out with people who deny the resurrection and choose to live certain ways for themselves without standing and proclaiming to them, this is not right. This is not how we're supposed to live in light of the resurrection. This is not how God has called us. You begin to live within that community without standing for the truth. And what happens? What does he say here? You will fall prey to their bad choices. You will will see the corruption of the good morals that you're meant to have because of him. You will begin to live a selfish life rather than a sacrificial life. Why? Because You're being deceived and you're buying into it. The fact is, the the world doesn't live with the proper view of the resurrection either, right? We're not to just be in the world and be of the world. (laughs) That's okay, believe whatever you want. Let's just go out and party and have fun and live for today. If you're a Christian, and you just live for today, Paul's got a problem with you. 
More than that, God has a problem with it. I'm just saying that's not how we are meant to live. In fact, here's, how, here's, here's what Paul to say to you, would say to you if this is how you're living. Wake up! That's what he says right there, verse 34. I didn't just yell that for no reason. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up. As is right. This is what you should do, Christian, who is living for yourself. Wake up. Living a selfish lifestyle is like living in a drunken stupor. It is foolish and it is dangerous. You do a lot of stuff that normally your own conscience would tell you not to do, right? And you put yourself into positions and situations that are dangerous for you. Paul says living a selfish lifestyle is just like that. You are being both foolish and dangerous. You, you are putting yourself in positions of danger and positions to make a fool out of yourself and out of, out of the Christianity even you claim. He doesn't just say it's like that. He goes on to say that it is sin. It is sin. Paul rightly calls our selfish living right here sin. Christians have not been saved to live for themselves. We have a king. We have one who is meant to instruct us, guide us, who calls us to live a certain way, who has given us a new life so that we might live it, and to go against him is sin. We are meant to wake up. He says, for, I, for, uh, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. Rightly, Paul says they lack knowledge of God. For if they knew God better, they would know better. Many of us proclaim again to, to know God, to love God. But our lifestyle truly shows what we truly do know. Again, I think part of it here is an intellectual thing, but it goes beyond that. If, if we truly know God, have a knowledge of God that is right, it affects how we live. Knowledge is not just meant to be informational. It's meant to be transformational. And to have tr truly embrace the knowledge of who God is means our lives are different now. And therefore, Paul rightly says here, if you're living for yourself, you lack an understanding of who God is. And even though they lack this understanding, Paul goes on to say that you should be ashamed. You should know better. You should have this knowledge. You should understand. It should be translating into your life. If you live this way, Knowing the gospel, knowing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your promised resurrection, and you go on living selfishly, you should be ashamed. That's what he says. Maybe for many of us, this is where we should just stop and repent. We should get on our knees and say, God, forgive us. 
for theologically day after day, Sunday after Sunday, proclaiming Jesus as glorious and our hope of eternity, yet going out and living like the world who doesn't know it. We should be ashamed. We should get on our knees. We should repent. We should turn from our sin. That is the hope of the gospel. Is that in our sin, we have a Savior. We have a hope. You know, my, my goal standing up here personally is not to shame you. <laughs> These are God's words and Paul's words, not mine. And yet I feel I must proclaim them faithfully. And yet here is the hope. As Paul even has written already in this chapter, the hope is that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and rose again and that we in our sinfulness and in our shame can run to him in Christ alone. My hope is found. And that in running to him and seeing who he is and expanding our our knowledge of God, reminding ourselves of what Christ has done and who we are in Christ, we might choose to live differently, sacrificially. This comes from a man who describes his life in other places, the beatings that he endured. The rejection, the cost of hunger and thirst of, of, of not having a place to sleep. All these things he endured for the sake of the gospel. We are called to live sacrificially. Paul goes on to say in verse 35, but some will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person. Now that that jarred me a little bit, all right? Struck me a little bit. I'm like, these seem like innocent questions, like, right? Legitimate questions that could be asked. Why is he calling me foolish if I were to ask them? Seems like an extreme response, but... Here's what I believe is going on here. Paul is addressing the response of those in verse 34. Those in verse 34 who he has called out to wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, have, you, have you ever woken up somebody who doesn't like to be woken up? I have a few of those. <laughs> yeah, doesn't like to be woken up. What happens? Don't they, they lash out. They're like angry waker-uppers. I'm not talking about anyone in my house now, but I'm just generalizing. They're angry waker-uppers. They, they lash out at you, you know. Give me five more minutes. Get away from me. You get too close, waking them up, you could get hit in some way. I think that's what's going on here. You know, these people are, are being woken up by Paul from their drunken stupor, from their sinning, and their response is, well, I don't see the resurrection now. Why should I live sacrificially? I mean, come on, how are they going to be raised? What kind of body? Because we haven't seen it. 
You know, Paul, Paul's seen it. He is an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. Others have seen it, but the Corinthians are saying, I haven't seen it. I just have to believe you. I mean, what? How, how am I going to base my life on, on that? And in that context, you foolish person. Makes a lot more sense, right? You foolish person. You should know better. You should know better how you are meant to live. He goes on to say, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He he begins by these analogies here. And his first analogy is of seeds, it's of harvest, it's, it's of planting and reaping and sowing. Now, we don't have a lot of farmers in our midst, but I think most of us understand the idea. Death brings life. And when you go to plant the seed, you're not hoping that the seed will be there when the harvest comes, right? Man, I planted this corn kernel, and guess what? Guess what? You know, fall came, and I got a corn kernel. (laughs) That's not what you're hoping for, right? You're hoping that kernel dies and produces new life. What What it currently is when it's sown is not what it will become. You're hoping that as it dies, it will bring about something new, something better, something glorious. He goes on to say that each seed has its own body, that it will become as divinely ordained by God. So we see this, verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. So it's just a little kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, corn or whatever, But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each kind of seed its own body. So it grows up into that which God has ordained it to be, but something very different than what was planted. Then he gives another analogy, an analogy of bodies. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earth is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So he goes on to say, everything has its own kind of body. We're meant to understand that in light of what he said about the kernel. Everything has a body that's been divinely ordained to it by God. Even earthly bodies have a kind of glory. Our earthly bodies, we're meant to care for them. We're meant to do what's right with them because they have a kind of glory that we're meant to give to God as our creator who created us from the dust of the ground and breathed into us the breath of life and made us in his image. So these bodies have a glory that we're meant to, to, to care for and display. But notice he also says heavenly bodies have another glory. And then he describes different earthly and heavenly bodies. He describes earthly humans, animals, birds, fish, heavenly sun, moon, stars. You're like, how do you compare the earthly with the heavenly? You know, they're they're different. They're different. The, the, The glory of the sun is a different glory than the glory of the animals. And the fact is the glory of our earthly bodies will be different from the glory of our heavenly bodies. But all of that is ordained by God. The resurrection of the dead is death that brings life. Just like the seed. The death of our natural body will become a spiritual body as divinely ordained by God. What we will be is God's creation, not our own. 
The analogy next that he gives is of Adam and of Christ. He calls them the, the, the first man, Adam, and then the last Adam, which he refers to as Christ. And here he says, Adam became a living being. So thus, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So he starts out with Adam. Adam being this living being is a natural body. It's natural in the sense of it's mortal. It's from the earth. It's from dust. And all humanity here share in that reality. And we all start this way. All of us start this way. With natural bodies, mortal men created from earth and dust. And then he describes Christ, this last Adam, who who became a life-giving spirit, who gives out life. He is the one, he's the giver of of a spiritual body. He himself now in his resurrection, having a spiritual body, he is meaning eternal. He's from heaven, describes here. What's interesting about the description of the last Adam as compared to the first Adam is that only those who are of heaven and only those who bear the image of the man of heaven share in his reality. When we believe the gospel, Scripture calls us being in Christ at our conversion. We believe the gospel, sinners needing Christ's life, death, and resurrection, trusting in it as their only hope. We find that this promise is true, that we will be like him. We will partake in his glory with him. We all are partakers in the first Adam. We all got bodies, and they are mortal, and they are decaying. Some of you young kids are like, mine's not decaying yet. Don't worry, it's coming. All right, I guarantee Um, it's coming, right? But we have this hope in what can come from from the new Adam, from from Jesus Christ. So we see here that God God has ordained that this resurrection would instruct us. It instructs us in how we practice baptism, but it also instructs us in how we practice a sacrificial life. And this sacrificial life is in hopes of the life that is yet to come our hope is that in this death that we die daily we look forward to a day when we will be living a different life this spiritual life in glory and that's what paul moves into my second point the promised resurrection instructs christians on how we should view the afterlife First of all, he tells us here, we must be changed in order to inherit the kingdom of God and the imperishable life promised. Notice what he says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something that was a secret beforehand, but now he's revealing it to us. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. 
Here he's saying we must change and we will change to inherit the kingdom of God. But when we ask the question, how do we change? Like, how do we change? Can we somehow do this? No, we can't. We can't. I mean, some people are waiting for some evolutionary change to come and bring humanity to its next level. That somehow humans are going to reach some maximum stage and shift into something new and different and more amazing. But what we're told here is that we will not be doing the changing. God will be changing us. Notice how he says it here. He says, we shall be changed in a moment. God will change us. God will be the worker to bring about this. And how do we know this confidence? Because we are in Christ. It brings us back to the gospel. If you're here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and as your Lord, as your hope for eternity, you you can't claim this promise. And here's the deal. It says we have to be changed to inherit the kingdom of God, to inherit this imperishable life that is promised. And if you are not in Christ, you will not receive this. This is not for you. It is the we... Paul addressing the church at Corinth and himself together, we, God's people, will be changed. The unsaved will be raised, but it is the saved, those who trust in Christ, who will be changed and inherit the kingdom of God and the imperishable life that is to follow. But that's not the only thing we must be changed to be given. He goes on in verse Uh, 54 through 57 to describe that we must be changed to be given victory over sin and death when the perishable puts on imperishable the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory this proclamation of victory while jesus died to take our sin, rose again to proclaim his victory over sin and death. Yet there will come a day when it will truly be proclaimed death is swallowed up in victory. But it's not yet. That's why at the beginning of my sermon I said there are some pains, there are some hurts, there are some sorrows, there are some separations that must wait till eternity to be resolved. There are. Sometimes we just want to demand that death is swallowed up in victory now. Right now. Do it now. We feel the pains and we cry out now. But it's not now. Yet. It will be now then, but not yet. We're not there. We haven't arrived. When we get there, every tear will be wiped away. But until then, we cry. Until then, we weep. At the things that we lose, at the things that hurt us, at the pains that we have to endure, we weep. But not forever. Not forever. Death will be swallowed up in victory that day. 
We must be changed in order to receive that victory. The mortal must put on immortality. And this is the promise of the resurrection, that those who are in Christ will be changed. And we will get to proclaim, death is swallowed up. Death is defeated. It is done. We can look forward to it, and we should. It should affect how we live our lives. We should die daily because we look forward to that day when we get to proclaim it. But realize this. We will not be able to proclaim it in its fullest until then. Don't get ahead of yourselves. Why is God making me suffer? Because death isn't been swallowed up, or hasn't been. Hasn't been swallowed up yet. Why do I have to go through this struggle? Death hasn't been swallowed up yet. But the Christian's hope isn't in this life. It's in the next we got to keep the resurrection in our minds. we got to keep it in our hearts. It has got to drive us. Our hope is not now. It is in eternity. And there we will proclaim as well, O death, where is your victory? Point of demand wants to die. We in this room, we will die. Die physically. But what is death to us? One step closer to victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul helps us out here in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. The African Bible commentary describes it this way. I think it's helpful. Death is something venomous, which gets its venom from sin. Once sin is no more, once we stand before God in the glorious heaven where there is no sin, where will the sting of death be? It will be removed, it will be gone. In fact, I look, at this, I look at this quote here that Paul quotes, and to me, this is the gloating that we get to do over sin and death. We get to proclaim that it's swallowed up, but then we get to gloat over it. You know? You won a game against somebody, whether it's on the video game or whether it's you're playing ball outside or something, you win a game and you're like, yeah, yeah, sit down, go find a bench, sit over there, because I'm awesome. You, know, you get a gloat. This is what he's describing. One day, we get to laugh in the face of sin and death. And say, you thought you had me. But look at this. But it's not ultimately because of us, right? We're not gloating on our behalf. What does he say? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of like stepping on the ball field and being like, yeah, my partner is Michael Jordan. He's right here. We're going to take you on two to two. Yeah. And he scores all the points and you win and you're like, yeah, sit down. I beat you. Well, he, he beat you. Uh, you're like, you know, we're gloating, but we're gloating ultimately over what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has done to us. Jesus t- took the sting of sin and death and overcame it through the cross and the resurrection. 
And on that future resurrection day, he will present us with that victory in full. So how can we apply this? I like passages like these because Paul tells us exactly how to do that. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So know and walk. First of all, know the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead should matter to you. It should matter to you for how you live now, for how you live in the future. We need to be steadfast. We need to be immovable. We need to be abounding in the work. The gospel is founded on the resurrection, and because of it, we can understand and live out the gospel. Because of it, we can live sacrificial lives. Because of it, we realize we are meant to live sacrificial lives. The giving of ourselves, as God has called us to, with the hope of a glorious future. Walk, let me break down these steadfast and immovable, standing firm on what the resurrection teaches, both internally and externally, so we know it in our heart and it's shown in our hands, both theologically, we know it in our head, and practically it's lived out in our lives. So first of all, what do you preach to yourself? You have to make a difficult choice when you're facing struggles, when you're facing trials, when you're facing persecution. What do you preach to yourself? You need to hear the hope of the resurrection so that you continue to live in obedience to God. The fact is, people who, Christians who live in disobedience have lost their view of the resurrection. You just live in obedience by continuing to preach to ourselves, this is not my home. I'm moving towards it. And I want to live in a way that honors the one I'm moving towards. What do you preach to others then? They need to hear the hope of the resurrection to turn and trust in God and follow Him faithfully. They need to hear that Jesus rose from the dead. Does your life match what you preach? Immovable hope in the resurrection means hope in this life is necessarily movable. Specifically, removable. The hope in this life needs to be removed from your vocabulary. It needs to be removed from the way you live. You need to look at the choices you make, the decisions you make. Are you just living for success in this world? How is this furthering your hope in eternity? An immovable hope in the resurrection means all the things you place your hope in here need to be removable, removed out of your life. Then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord is the hope of the resurrection that proclaims your sacrifices. Every sacrifice you make is not in vain. The resurrection proclaims that. Every sacrifice you make for the gospel, every sacrifice you make for Jesus Christ and the furthering of his kingdom, the building up of his church, the encouragement of his people, every one the resurrection proclaims is not in vain. It may feel like it at times, but it's not. Your labor includes uh, living as a Christian, 
which is loving and serving God. But being a Christian also means loving and serving your spouse and your kids and your parents and your friends and your coworker and your boss and others. Loving everyone you come in contact with. That seems like a lot of giving, doesn't it? Man, I just feel like I'm always giving out love. Giving out service. Giving of myself, my time, my energy. Yeah. That's what the Christian life is. It's spending up all that we've been given here on earth because this is going to go. This is laying up treasures in heaven. The resurrection declares that our sacrificial love of service and of giving in this life is worth it. It is worth it. As Jesus said in John 12, I'll end with this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the promise and hope of the life to come. Lord, may may we see how glorious it is. May we see how even our trials are meant to help us remove our hope from this life and place it in the next. May we embrace the glory of resurrection by willingly choosing to live sacrificially in this life. Lord, our hope, our hope is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.